This is the Saxo Market Call. Daily insights on what is moving the financial markets. Hello and welcome to this very special edition of the Saxo Market Call, our listeners podcast. We're actually recording this uh, today on December 30th, the day that we're releasing it. And uh, yeah, this is all about what you sent us and what you would like to hear us talk about. And we'll talk a little bit about your predictions for the new year. But we really need to start off by saying um, uh, how wonderful we found that many of you just took the opportunity for us uh, asking for your questions, for your uh, predictions for the new year, that you just took the opportunity to uh, reach out and give us a compliment or two and some great feedback. Very motivating. We're very flattered. And really, really appreciate that, how much that that means to us. It was really good stuff to hear from you all. So thank you very much uh, on behalf of the team for that feedback. Okay, let's uh, let's dive right into your, uh, your predictions for the new year. And we can see that we have a slide deck with today's podcast. You can find the link in the podcast description, as always. And uh, let's look at what you, the Saxo listeners, Saxo Market Call listeners, are predicting for the new year. We seem to be a bit of a bearish lot. If we look at these predictions, you can see on slide two, on the upper left there, we have the average for the Saxon market call listeners, 35.41, and looking for a Fed funds rate around 5%. That's more aggressive than the market, although it is closer to what the Fed itself is saying. And the U.S. 10-year slightly higher than the uh, peak for the cycle, quite interestingly, that we saw this year at 4.5%. And you can see the highs and the lows there. Uh, an interesting one to guessing <laughs> Fed funds at 6.3 and 10-year at 7.1. I, I don't care to think where the S&P 500 might be if that was the case, uh, Peter. But uh, you can see where that is versus the market, at least on the Fed and the ECB on the right, the, the, where the futures curves are pricing, or at least you can view that as a probability matrix or a hedging matrix as well. And uh, I'll get back to why Eurodollar is trading where it is, because you can see that the differential uh, between the two policy rates actually shrinks. Uh, if that is where these respective policy rates are headed in the new year. And then I uh, found a tweet that listed uh, some of the bigger banks out there and where their targets are uh, for next year. Generally a positive lot, as is always the case, uh, but you do have a handful that are actually slightly below, at or below the market. Uh, BNB, BNP Paribas impressively with a 3,400 target for next year. Now we've talked a lot about in our investors wish list for the new year, the factors that will lead to uh, where uh, the market will be trading next year, a very key part of that uh, being interest rates. If I was to take a stab, not at the S&P 500, but where Fed funds might be and the U.S. 10-year, I suspect the inflation, uh, the come down in inflation will happen early in the year, but it could also uh, blow back out. We could see Fed funds at 5.5%, or yeah, Fed funds at 5% to 5.5%, the 10-year pro- approximately similar. So a flat yield curve, much higher 10-year yield. Uh, Peter, I'll hand it over to you on the implications of what the Saxo listeners are saying and uh, some, some thoughts as well, how this year shaped up as we, as we head into uh, 2023. Yeah. I, I think actually it at 2023 could easily have this uh, inverted yield curve. I, I think that still has a possibility if we, if we believe that economic growth slows down, if that's the case and if we get some sort of a recession, give or take, uh, and, and also what degree that will be a, uh, We'll have to see. I think those uh, predictions are pretty close to consensus. If I'm right, John, uh, on the Fed funds and the ten-year. I think the S&P 500 average by our listeners at around that 3,500, 3,540-ish, uh, is well below where where the street is. You put that in uh, very interestingly with the um, with that tweet that came from Jonathan Farrow. And I think if you look at the predictions for this year, the the street, the Wall Street strategies were awfully wrong uh, i think jp morgan was one of the most bullish ones turned around very late into the year so i think all, all these predictions should always be taken with a grain of salt and also keep in mind as well that the you know the unpredictability of of uh, markets over a one-year horizon is pretty large uh, the forecasting errors will always be high i have still i've said it in in several presentations that i i think there are I think there are there there is a room there is a path for the S&P 500 to go all the way to 3200 it will require though maybe a little bit deeper recession than what we think is our base case scenario right now and there's a lot of noise around how much margins will be will be impacted for by companies but also and this is the key variable I have a chart later in the in the podcast to show this is what will the risk premium 
on equity, what will be the uh, equity risk premium on uh, on equities relative to to fixed income? I think it's a it's a key variable, and it it uh, it's a variable that really can change a lot in a short time span. So it it really takes a temperature of how uh, risky uh, investors are on their investments. So, um, but we'll talk more about that later in the podcast for sure. Yeah, and it's hard to know. Uh, apologies uh, in advance. We'll be jumping around a bit trying to to pull together the threads uh, as we go through your questions and some of the topic areas in those. Uh, but you can see, uh, Peter, on your overview there on slide three of the year to date, it's been a remarkably bad year for most uh, of the theme baskets that we track uh, for the Saxo the Saxo equity theme baskets. So you can see the overview again on slide three. Couple standing out quite a bit. We've talked a lot as well in the interview I did with Stan Jacobson about the the fact that you had an incredibly bad year for uh, balanced funds, so called. It doesn't look so balanced when everything was doing horribly. So uh, you know, bond funds coming down in a terrible year. There was zero offset from the fixed income side, and if you were leveraged uh, to volatility as uh, under the sort of the precepts of so called risk parity, etc. You might have even performed worse on your bond side than on the equity side, but uh, quite a bloodbath in many of these equity baskets. And those two that stand out uh, really are commodities and defense. Nuclear power, a very respectable performance, even posting any kind of positive uh, in this uh, in this very bad year uh, for equities. What are your thoughts uh, on these baskets? There, there was a specific question uh, on what might perform well, at least in the first half of next year, in terms of these in terms of these theme baskets. Yeah, I, I want to step a little bit back first because there's a lot of tweets by respected market commentators, etc., pulling out these uh, calendar statistics. Like normally, when you have a, a big a big negative year on the Nasdaq 100, then we bounce back on the on the following year. The same for S and P 500. It's very rare that you have two consecutive years of negative returns. This year's equity market performance has been driven by the interest rate shock. It's very clear that it's right now. It's just a repricing to you know a different level of cost of capital in equity market. That's it. Earnings, cash flows, etc., more or less unchanged. Actually, slightly higher for this year than it was the previous year. So it's a total repricing from interest rates. And I, we're going to talk about one of the books I'm actually reading uh, later in this podcast because it's all about uh, causality. And uh, I think a lot of people are being fooled by randomness when they pull out these uh, calendar statistics because. As I said, this year was about the interest rate uh, repricing. Next year, if we are right about the margin compression and if we are right about you know some of the fallouts uh, in the in the economic system, then the next year could easily see a negative equity return once again because now it's not about the interest rate repricing, but it's actually about pricing in the lower trajectory of earnings because there will be all those uh, headwinds for earnings. Um, and then I talk if we talk about the themes, it's very clear you can actually. You can actually see from this table what type of year it was. It was a it was a year that was bad for technology. Sort of the lo- the ten year bull market in technology ended with a, quite a spectacle, and then you had commodities finally coming out of its slumber. Uh, and defense stocks were responding very aggressively to or positively to the war in Ukraine and Russia's awful invasion of uh, of a sovereign country. Nuclear power, renewable energy, responding to the energy crisis, higher prices in general for electricity and, and energy, and we will talk much more about that. It's going to be a theme that will be with us for a couple of years. And then India is also doing was doing better than the market, responding to um, to a lot of things, uh, amongst others, China, seeing a lot of manufacturing being reshored because of their COVID policy, logistics as well, doing well, a lot of supply uh, chains being um, still seeing all these bottlenecks and high prices. If I was to bet on some of the themes, I think the most, um, I think markets, especially equities, there are momentum effects. And the momentum effect is very clear, at least in previous research on on the one-year horizon. So if you look at the one-year performance column, you would think that those that are in the top there would continue to do well, at least in the months to come. I am quite positive on commodities. As I said to Ole just before we went on, on Christmas, I, I did these calculations on a copper miner and I was shocked. It was it's one of the it's a copper mine I own myself. I was shocked to see the low return on invested capital before the pandemic. Three percent. And now copper prices have almost doubled and the return on invested capital is still only eight and a half percent, which is below the cost of capital. So you still have a huge part of the of the mining complex that is running uh, return on invested capital below cost of capital. You need much higher prices for uh, for these miners to go into new greenfield investments. So I think commodities, uh, defense and all shapes of, of energy stocks will continue to do uh, to do very well in the first half year. 
Yeah, I'm going to get to you, Ola, in a, in a second, but I need to have a couple of follow-on comments on that and a question I think is very good from, from Jacob on, so, you know, when you have this uh, march of higher interest rates, you see the market's uh, focus shifting away from those with the aggressive valuations because of the implications, you know, a long, uh, high growth, high multiple stock is very threatened by higher interest rates. And then you see a lot of uh, theme rotation into value. And so you're seeing some companies that are not really growing at any notable rate, but have you know solid earnings and are so-called value companies. Uh, I think, as Jacob is saying here, you know, what about stocks like Coca-Cola? And I would add our favorite to make fun of Campbell's Soup, <laughs> posting a uh, you know pretty impressive, uh, pretty impressively posting a, a high for the year uh, when other stocks were doing poorly. Are these value stocks even value stocks anymore? It's a very good question whether they are value stocks any longer. I think we, I've showed that with some equity notes in the past that. There is a clear tendency for equity markets investors to reward companies that have predictability. It's also one of the the, uh, the trademarks of Warren Buffett in his approach. The predictability of cash flows really gets rewarded when the macroeconomic environment gets very uncertain. And if you look at Coca-Cola, it might not be growing spectacular any longer. It's probably only you know growing with inflation or maybe slightly above inflation over a, an economic uh, cycle. But the, the cash flows are very predictable. And in the short term, because of the rotation of the flows, these uh, type of value stocks will, will still do well. I think the, the definition of value of a value stock is, 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 is not easy. I, I don't really buy into the the old classic way of defining uh, value, uh, value stocks simply also because of all the intangible assets that we have seen in the world. Another thing, actually, it's a question that I will answer in a little bit more in depth when I talk about the three books that I will recommend readers to to pick up on because it is a fascinating theme and I, I have a different approach to it. And I, I've also become a little bit wiser over the years as I've you know matured, I think, as, a, as an equity strategist. All right. Uh, and then just as a reminder, go back and have a listen to the Investor's Wishlist podcast on the different shapes of the yield curve. Uh, I put it up the same slide again on slide four, actually, and it's, it's going to be absolutely critical uh, for Peter's space on how things shape up in the new year, what happens to the yield curve. Uh, as I show there, the, the blue is where the market is expecting things to go. We're going to hit economic headwinds. Inflation is going to come down. The Fed is going to be able to cut. We'll get a steepening yield curve. Long end is anchored, and then we'll have some stimulus from easier rates at the front end to start to uh, work against the incoming recession and pressures from that. The, uh, the sort of straightforward scenario that's uh, more negative would be, oops, uh, a bit more inflation, a bit more growth than expected. Ironically, as, as I think Stain covered so well, uh, it would be terrible if we are headed towards the blue scenario. Uh, better we're, or, or more likely we're headed towards something like the orange or even the red. The orange being that, oops, inflation is a bit higher, growth is still a bit more persistent. The Fed has to tighten a little bit more or at least keep rates where they are and a bit higher into the year end. The, the long end is still anchored. And then I find the most interesting and possibly the most likely scenario, something more like the red scenario, where we lose trust that central banks are ever going to really get ahead of inflation and the Fed has to hike more than expected. That is the real killer relative to the forward expectations and would mean that we could head towards a steeper yield curve without yields necessarily coming down. Not a prediction, but I think uh, it's my forecast for uh, the risk, especially the risk relative to where the market is uh, priced. But Ola, over to you. I mean, there's been a lot of questions in our uh, our listener response here uh, to some of the issues that Peter mentions on the commodity side. Um, I don't know where to pick up the thread here, but to, you know, where are we positioned energy-wise? I think that the market is quite complacent on, on the inflation risks from the energy sector uh, in the new year. Certainly, as we as we look forward to the the mix of risks, absolutely, John. Uh, because we're simply uh, we're facing quite a few headwinds as we uh, head towards the uh, end of the year and uh, as we start twenty three. We um, I put in slide sixteen. It's uh, right at the bottom there at the deck uh, because there's also a question about how come uh, we how come the market's been falling uh, through while we still have maintained backwardation uh, in the market and uh, and the reasons for that is, is simply that uh, the 
the uh, we we have to remember where we came from earlier this year. We came from a a, a very panicky situation when the uh, war in Ukraine uh, broke out. Uh, the supply chain disruptions that uh, that followed. We saw a similar uh, thing in, unfold in the gas market, where we saw that massive spike over the summer, just simply due to uncertainty about the availability of supply. We we were never at any point uh, troubled uh, by lack of supply, but it was more the market uh, getting getting ahead of itself in terms of worrying about uh, supply and that drove prices higher. Since then, the market has become a bit more, um, what can you say, uh, normal in the sense that uh, it's a bit more supply and demand driven as we head towards the end of the year. And that basically also means that we have we've seen the front end of the the, the, the blend, Brent curve move into a contango simply because we got the lockdowns in China being replaced by a virus surge, which is uh, keeping demand down. We have a we have the overall uh, worry about the economic activity heading into next year. And all this has basically led to quite a lot of uh, speculators uh, long liquidation. And I think that's that's main one of the main reasons why we've seen this shift in the curve, uh, where especially the front end has, has taken a beating. That's more normally where we find speculators uh, position themselves. And as you can see on the on the right hand side, you can see there's been quite a quite a sharp reduction in the in the net long held. But uh, this is just uh, the Brent crude uh, contract uh, dropping to uh, to levels we haven't seen for uh, for a couple of years. So so that's I think it's, it's putting the the front end of the curve on the pressure, but at the same time, the fact that we're actually maintaining a backward data curve still indicate that the market is, is still worries still worries about uh, what lies ahead in the new year. And I think they're right right to be worried somewhat. Uh, we're probably going to see a weak first quarter uh, because the the developments in China is, will take time to uh, to uh, to get more normalized, and then we'll potentially see a a pickup uh, as we move deeper into the year. And as if if we got uh, if we hang on to uh, Stine Jakobsen's uh, prediction for the U.S. growth that we're not gonna we're not gonna hit a recession, then obviously there will be some growth adjustments as well, which will uh, underpin prices as we move uh, deeper into the year. And then obviously the whole energy transition that's all. Also, uh, still the uh, the worry, and uh, especially when it comes to investments, where the investments going to come from? That's uh, going to ensure we have adequate supplies until that time where we hit a peak in in oil demand. We start to see lower demand in years to follow, and I think most people do not expect that peak to happen for at least another five years, perhaps a bit longer than that. Yeah, and we have to remember also uh, part of the uh, the big boost in supply in the oil and the fossil fuel sector has been from shale. And we have to remember a lot of that shale production came from financing that was uh, offered very poor returns to investors and that they're actually these shale producers are keeping their output down to ensure good returns to investors rather than to expand production. So a lot of the in other words, a lot of the financing happened post GFC when interest rates were absurdly low. It was easy to borrow aggressively and and raise production. But that investment is now. Uh, lacking in expanding production. And I think it's really there are a lot of questions related to uh, energy and alternative energy. Uh, one one uh, uh, a voucher is asking about what's better, a green energy ETF or something in the fossil fuel industry. Uh, I think that's one for you, Peter, but as well, whether the whole alternative energy space is even serious at all. And actually on that front, I, I have, I think it's the biggest question our, our uh, well, humanity really faces in coming years. A, can we transition to new energy? Because, because we have to. Because fossil fuels, whether they're going to last or be able to grow for five years, for 10 years or 20 years, they're still going to peak and roll over at some point. And of course, the climate change linked to that. What is the solution? Is it nuclear? Is it alternative? Is it a mix of the two? Uh, or are these uh, totally unavailable and we're going to go into reverse industrialization? I don't know, but I just do find it interesting. And I wanted to point this out because it's, it runs a bit counter to what I think is possible. But it comes from a source that I would think is uh, far more authoritative than myself, and that's on slide six. So it's uh, from uh, Rustad Energy, which is a Norwegian energy consultancy, traditionally associated very much with uh, sort of world-class insights into uh, the potential on the oil and gas side of things. But they've expanded quite aggressively into covering alternative energy as well. And in a speech and in some of the projections, as you see on slide six, they're saying that essentially we can transition to uh, a mostly alternative energy-based future. And that little tiny slice you see there in yellow, not the top bit, but that really tiny slice there in yellow is actually, uh, no, their, their nuclear is the one of the disappearingly small slices there. I'm not sure if it's the slightly more orangey one. Basically, they're saying there's no role for nuclear. I find that fascinating because there are alternative voices calling for a vast expansion and investment into nuclear. 
and there's a lot of noise in that space. Uh, I don't know which one of you guys wants to step in there on on that bit. Well, and then we well, need to, can... and we also need to to link that back to it's not just a risk inflation and commodities uh, from a supply and demand uh, point of view, but also from a geopolitical point of view. And that's where the next big transition in our in our uh, our conversation will go. But where where are you seeing in the commodity space the the weak points for <clears throat> or, or or the developments from here in terms of this this future that that uh, Reistad outlined? Well, I think one word uh, will cover base load. And uh, yeah. base load is basically the ability to constantly have enough, uh, have, uh, or basically reduce the volatility in in, uh, in power production, and uh, that's really the, the biggest challenge that we're facing right now. Just looking at today, we're in the UK right now as a good example from the national grid. The UK is now producing 110 percent uh, of its energy, uh, more, of, but basically producing 10 percent more power than it's it's uh, required. Basically, because uh, wind is delivering 72% of the total uh, energy mix in the UK today, more than 20 gigawatt. That's 20 nuclear power plants. Just a couple of weeks ago, that was around two gigawatt, and that just highlights the extreme volatility we're seeing in the in the output from from renewables uh, on on good days where the wind is blowing like it is right now. It's fantastic. On days it's not. We need to we need alternatives, and that's obviously where we've been squeezed because uh, the, the 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 cost of power is is set by the uh, the, the the marginal cost and that has been or the marginal highest cost and that has been gas in recent recent uh, months and that's why on days where the wind doesn't blow we suddenly have these massive spikes in in power price which is obviously not a good uh, good good development so we need to get that base load uh, higher or we need to get uh, think smart about how we uh, how we conserve energy or how we how we store energy perhaps as uh, as hydrogen maybe people Peter can talk about that but um, but generally do we need to move in that direction in the renewable direction absolutely it it does work but it, but we are faced with some some uh, intermittent problems that uh, they need to be solved as well for this really to be uh, be the future what do you say, Peter, on the uh, conversation around green energy um, and, 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 and differentiating the two Saxo baskets uh, we have there, for example? So we have the renewable energy, which you know put in a respectable performance in a down year of only down minus 2%. Uh, and then we have this green transformation, which was a uh, an epic uh, wipeout at minus 50%, perhaps because it was so pumped up valuation-wise. What's the differentiating factor between those two baskets, first of all? And how do you view sort of the space uh, as you're looking forward to the next you know year or two? Yeah, so we we have several energy baskets, John. Uh, we have the green transformation, as you said. We have energy storage. We have renewable energy and nuclear power. So nuclear power and the renewable energy are energy production-related companies. They have done the best because the price of power production or power generation uh, have risen significantly this year. The green transformation are companies that use you know electricity or power or, or green energy in different ways and as you can see that has done very bad uh, part of that has been you know the the collapse of electric vehicle companies i think that has really surprised a lot of people that hey actually with electricity prices sees a lot of volatility you know uncertainty and high prices people don't want to invest in assets that use electricity so electricity vehicles have gone down uh, a lot in terms of pricing because of expectations for uh, worsening demand. So that's the green transformation, also other things. It's recycling companies, etc. So, uh, and there has been a, a, quite a sensitivity to interest rates in that basket because of high equity valuations. And then you have the energy storage, which is sort of sort of in between. So if you produce excess electricity, then you need energy storage. And energy storage basket is is comprised of companies within battery technology. Uh, it's lithium miners for producing these batteries. It's also it's also fuel cell manufacturers, hydrogen-related uh, companies like manufacturers of electrolyzers, equipment, etc. So, so that's sort of the differentiation between the different baskets. If I was to come back to the chart, I was sort of smiling when you were talking, uh, John, uh, and also a little bit when Ole set the base load. I think these type of forecasts and, and predictions are absolutely rubbish. And uh, I think they're useless, uh, to, 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 to be honest, because I don't I don't really think you have stability in technology and the system that make it possible to do a, a smooth uh, prediction like this. It, it, it is absolutely useless. Sorry for being so, uh, so brutal. Um, but it does. It does. Uh, I, I, I largely agree, but it will drive 
decision making and and uh, the flows of investment. So in, investors also need to know where investment dollars are going because those that's where potentially some of the returns can come from, at least in the the startup phase of of, of you know investigation and rolling out products because that's where you've seen the investment. Yeah, exactly. But it's it's interesting is if you look at where if you look at where private equity or not private equity, but venture capital, the most risky part of the of the capital structure where they are investing in the energy complex, they're not investing in solar and wind, to be honest. That that's not where they're investing in nuclear, aren't they? They are investing in new generation of nuclear power. Yeah. A lot of investments into fusion energy, which by the way is seeing some incredible interesting breakthroughs these years. They are investing into new methods of uh, geothermal technology, sorry, geothermal uh, technology. They are investing in other things. The solar and wind industry are, interestingly enough, being powered by giga investments from utility companies, which all have a lot of state ownership uh, in their shareholder structure, a lot of uh, secured pricing by all these different pricing schemes for for power generated by this and then also i think that have come to the attention of policymakers and and we talked about it before we went on the uh, the christmas holiday here at the headquarter we have we have been so focused on carbon emission and are wanting to price that carbon emission because that's sort of 101 in economics or you can call it 102 that if you have negative externalities you need to put a price on it for the capital market or the the market economy to efficiently allocate resources because the market is not really good at you know taking into account negative externalities if there's no price on it but there's also a negative externality on renewable energy and that is as the share of power generation goes up on renewable energies there is a system cost there's a grid cost because you need to store the excess energy yes. and you need to convert it into something else and that's where in Europe, we talk about the power to X. So you you take the excess energy from all this case with the the excess wind production in the UK. You take that excess energy, you you put them towards massive electrolyzer equipment factories. You then uh, split the hydrogen atoms out of the water, and then you have hydrogen. But then that need that needs to be stored, and then after that, you need to send it to gas turbine power plants and burn it. It's fine, but there's a huge loss in in that energy conversion. That's what people need to understand. Every time you transform and convert energy from from one state to another, there is a loss, right? So, and and then there's also the whole question about how much building materials you need to build all these things, and you have the pushback as well on on other parts of the climate activists. So, I just read the other day that all these offshore uh, wind farms they want to build out of uh, the coastline of New England in the U.S. I was in the in the state of Massachusetts, getting huge pushbacks from marine biologists because it's it's there's a threat there to the to the local life also of cut, etc. It's it's just not easy. Uh, I I and and personally and I'm sorry for this long spiel. Uh, this is the last podcast of years, and we can talk <laughs> a bit about this. I personally think <clears throat> that. I think it's interesting in this forecast that there is no room for a surprise on technology. I where is the fusion that should be, you know, there is some probability that, that could go through also next generation of nuclear. I think geothermal technology will see a huge leap forward in the in the decades to come. And I think actually that's one of the very interesting technologies because the if you can get the uh, geothermal technology to work where you can go deeper into the uh, to the earth's crust at lower cost you can actually access 24-7 baseload heating and power generation at all times. And you don't have any, I mean, the fuel is coming from the inside. So there's no waste product either. I mean, to me, that would be the golden solution. Yeah. Um, so. I ask Iceland, but of course, they have a very fortunate, uh, very easy access to geothermal because they're sitting on the very thin <laughs> bit of the Earth's crust. Um, and the, therefore, there are some very electricity intensive uh, processes that take place in Iceland. As, as far as I know, copper smelting, I believe, or aluminum smelting, I think, being one of those. All right. Let's go to <clears throat> try to link this up to another area of risk, I think, both for inflation, uh, for the U.S. dollar, but also the whole geopolitical question. There was a lot of questions around this, uh, not specifically on China so much, but there were China was brought into the, uh, the mix. And that's a question around uh, especially with, with the, the wider knock-on consequences of, of Russia and its attempt at de-dollarization, will that succeed? Uh, if so, what does that mean? Of course, that would be a massive that would have massive implications because so much of world trade is denominated in the U.S. dollar. 
if significant trading partners are able to start reducing their dependency on the dollar, seeking to avoid, for obvious reasons, the weaponization of the, the financial system as Russia suffered when it decided to invade Ukraine, it froze its assets, etc. Uh, China not wanting to be subject to the same situation if it wants to do something geopolitically. So there's this interesting positioning, and, and I think the, one of the thought leaders in this whole space is Zoltan Posar. If you can look him up, you can generally find his research uh, in PDF form. Has put out a string of pretty influential pieces that get a lot of coverage, um, saying that, for example, this recent Saudi-China uh, summit uh, suggests that we are on the road to something similar to the petrodollar in, in the form of a petro-UN and how that would work. Uh, Ola, I mean, we've had the petrodollar we had we had the petrodollar sort of established in the seventies. The U.S. has uh, since its highest level dependencies largely become self reliant in energy returns uh, terms, even exporting now LNG to help bail out uh, Europe out of its terrible gas shortages. Uh, how do you view all of this uh, in terms of the risk for the oil price and 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 where you see OPEC, where OPEC's trading partners? Are? I don't know what, what's your how would you weigh in this whole this whole question around this uh, de-dollarization of crude. And maybe other commodities as well. Well, there's no doubt that uh, the Middle East, uh, in terms of oil production, primarily looks east these days. Uh, their biggest uh, trading uh, or biggest buyers of oil uh, can be found in in the Middle East and uh, also obviously India. And uh, we are seeing, we saw that recent visit uh, by by uh, President Xi to uh, to Saudi Arabia, uh, where he set out some some uh, some uh, ideas. Or some plans, and uh, obviously one of them is that uh, Saudi uh, and all the Middle East should pay for uh, for their oil in uh, Rebimbi, which then can be used uh, for for other other trading purposes. So it is uh, something we we've seen, uh, I think, ex- uh, accelerate in in focus this year. Not least, as you mentioned, by the war in Ukraine and the Russian Russian assets being being uh, being being stranded at uh, for now. And I think one place where we've seen as a significant impact of this is in the gold market uh, and i put that in on uh, slide 14 where we basically have seen so far uh, during the first three quarters of this year uh, central banks bought a total of 673 uh, tons that's more than in any full year since 1967 according to the world gold council and uh, i assume that the last quarter will will show quite a significant pickup as well and part of this is most certainly driven by by governments and central banks who wants to move away from the dollar or want to be less dependent on the dollar uh, given uh, given the, the the potential risks we've seen this year uh, when uh, with, with with the dollars and and euros being held um and that is also the reason why we've, we've basically seen gold perform, I would say, extremely well uh, this year. It's flat on the year, but considering it's a year where we've seen a surge in real yields where the dollar has risen, it is, uh, you can say that it's all to play for next year. And it also uh, shows that uh, if you just look at the ETF investors, uh, they have been pulling out 130 tons. So, so that obviously was a negative, but behind that, when we got central banks buying to this extreme, then obviously it does indicate that something is something is going on. What that will imp- how that will impact the, uh, the the strength of the dollar going forward, that's more up to you, uh, John. But uh, again, if if it, if the need for dollar in trades, especially when it comes to energy, which is such a massive part of the global trading system, if that starts to uh, deteriorate, then then again, then who wants the dollar? Yeah, it's a very it is an existential question for the dollar in the long run. I'm not so sure it's it's a 2023 situation, but we'll see the seeds of whatever's coming next. And I think mostly it's about uh, the risk of a, re- a reset higher for inflation uh, because of how this pricing works. But uh, Peter, you and I have remarked, and it's just it just what the rearrangements. As somebody was asking, can we get back to the pre uh, 2000 or the pre pandemic uh, world in terms of some of the themes? And I, I would just say no. We're we're on to new. Uh, we're on to new uh, new situations here, uh, driven by the twin shocks of the pandemic uh, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But you have this very strange setup where you have, of course, uh, Europe moving off of uh, Russian imports of cheap fossil fuels. This has created a massive energy tax for Europe, uh, as we've seen. Uh, and then you have a, an industry like BASF, a very energy intensive, uh, massive chemicals producer, pulling up stakes out of this Ludwigshafen uh, plant, an enormous uh uh, refinery complex, very energy hungry, and and moving a lot of that essentially to China, who is able to produce cheap coal energy and is also importing Russian crude at a very heavy discount because of that uh, pariah state discount, if you will, 
for Russia having invaded Ukraine. Isn't this a huge question mark over Europe? How does Europe navigate something like that if it's supposed to have all these climate goals and then it's just sending its industry off to a polluting China in terms of carbon emissions? I, I just shake my head at this this whole development, how this, the sustainability of this of this model, this, this shuffle, it should be going the other direction, should it not? I tend to sort of be in the camp where different type of companies and, and entities in this world, you, it's all a struggle for resources, right? You just send out different signals because it's you want these resources. I think BSSF is just sending sort of a balloon or, or is just sending out this warning signal. I don't think that they're going to, as they say, permanently move chemical production away. They're not that stupid because, first of all, the EU is moving forward with uh, different types of taxes around the border uh, because of you know self-interest, uh, self-preservation, self-reliance. So there will be a CO2 carbon emission tax on the border. You, we're not. We're no longer going to just reshore manufacturing to to China, Indonesia, and Vietnam, and then allow them to run the whole manufacturing side of things on coal power and then import it back into uh, back into EU. It's not. That's not going to be the future. I'm sorry. Um, and and then that chemical refining you talked about from BSSF in Germany is the largest industrial complex in Europe. It has cost tens and tens of billions of euro to to build out over the years. They're not going to to let that investment go and write it off. Um, so I think they're playing a, a game of chicken here. It's also about can we get prioritized in terms of energy supplies, but it it is all coming back to the to the renewable and the baseload uh, question, and also the question about you know when do you get high equity valuations when you have certainty when you when can you do proper planning of manufacturing industrial production it's when you have certainty on uh, electricity costs right so we need to fix the energy situation in europe and get that base load get more base load into the system so we can stabilize energy price otherwise it's very difficult to to plan but i'm 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 not really that pessimistic on europe i think things will slowly slowly be resolved over time and and get better uh, not worse uh, i think they're just playing a game of chicken here with the with the eu all right i think uh, also the whole situation is encouraging the type of investment that uh, ensures that we are rushing in whatever form uh, towards the next uh, towards that energy transition because we have to Oh, here's a good one. I think uh, from Richard uh, over in the USA asking about investments investments that are not highly correlated with stocks and bonds, and and I think that's that that's really an impossibility in some ways. I think there are there are commodities you could look at. Uh, I would argue that are very low correlation. What, what commodities would you pick out or, or ETFs if, if one wanted some sort of slightly passive allocation to commodities? It's not as a recommendation, but to to look at as an instrument that that has less correlation with. Uh, equities and bonds. Well, generally, uh, if we just look at our our our, our view for for commodities is, uh, next year and and beyond is is basically one where we one where we see commodity prices still uh, moving higher, even though we potentially should hit a uh, hit some re- recessionary uh, s- situation around the world, uh, because simply the supply situation is is equally important as the demand, obviously, and that's why we we think some of these uh, these these areas will provide some some uh, some cover. So um, I prefer watching. Uh, I prefer the energy and the metal sector, um, and and if we should uh, avoid. Uh, Direct investment in in the individual commodities, which is tends to be very volatile. I prefer some of the uh, the index tracking uh, funds, and uh, those who follow me know that I always use the Bloomberg Commodities Index because it's it's more broadly exposed uh, to the uh, to the sectors, whereas the S and P GSI, which is the other big one, uh, tracked by numerous ETFs, uh, mostly is exposed to the energy and and the gas gas sector. So um, so I prefer the Bloomberg Commodities Index, and uh, and it's been doing. Uh, it's been doing well this year, and uh, I could see potentially, uh, well, most certainly uh, the, 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 the chance that it could outperform the, the stock market again next year. All right, Peter, I think uh, one of the ways to look at this is to say, well, there are plenty of stocks and equity themes that are not correlated with the broader market. Isn't that one of the, one of the key points and lessons from 2022 and, and possibly for the coming year and years as well? Absolutely. And also countries that will be doing quite well. I, I think we talked briefly about it in our uh, investors wish list and some of our previous podcasts during the year i think partly this inflection point we're at is also an inflection point for the whole passive versus active i sort of agree with all that a, a good way for most people of course is using etfs to get exposure to say let's say the commodity sector the energy sector etc but 
So those that are willing to put in a little bit of extra work, uh, and that is actually, there's a link there to one of the books I will recommend. For, for those that are willing to put in some extra work, I, I think there is actually going to be a, a payoff, a positive payoff, um, simply because there will be a bigger room for, for stock selection. It, it is a very different environment. There will be a, a bigger, because it's not really one a one-way street any longer where interest rates are just coming down, uh, lifting old boats. There will be much more variation, I think, across themes and um, and and different companies inside these these industries, and it'll be much more win- winners and losers because of, we are in this big transition. So that will sort of be my take on it. Yeah, and then on the emerging market side, questions about the reshoring away from and friendshoring. Some people are calling it uh, away from China. So there's some questions on Vietnam. I believe you've brought up Vietnam and certainly India as well, and some of your thoughts. So any thoughts on emerging markets broadly, especially uh, there's a questions uh, ex- Asia ex Japan and China. Yeah, my my quick my take on emerging markets, don't buy an emerging markets ETF because you're getting a very concentrated portfolio where 60% of the equity value is, uh, is Chinese equities. I think the common prosperity and the politics and the policy goals of China is not necessarily shareholder friendly. I think I think it makes buying into the emerging market equity basket would be very 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 difficult uh, of course if the dollar suddenly declines a lot then it will lift all boats on the emerging markets but i think being selective i think in the emerging markets is more interesting so indonesia vietnam india those three countries will be the winners over the coming years from the reshoring we already have seen flows and a lot of interest from from equity investors especially india this year and then if we look towards latin america latin america and africa has been an absolute catastrophe over the past 10 years in terms of equity performance but if we can get a little bit weaker dollar and we continue to see this um, this strong cycle for commodities, then countries like Brazil should be should be in play. I also think Mexico, uh, part of this reshoring and also the proximity to the U.S. should uh, should have a, an opportunity to to do better uh, over the coming years. So there's definitely a scope there, I think, for uh, for being a little bit more selective on the emerging markets. Yeah, and on the currency side, a couple of key points there. So you brought in uh, Latin America and, and you see something like dollar Mexico. So we've had a very strong dollar until the end of 2022 anyway, but the Mexican peso has done even better. And if you look at what the Mexican peso yields with its eight plus percent policy rate, you've had a carry trade on top of that. And that was one of the key lessons in this cycle. Emerging markets doing quite well relative to their past behavior in, in many instances. And a lot of that is on their their real rates uh, outlook and their real rates uh, credibility, hiking the policy rate because they know the drill. Uh, they hike policy rates when inflation goes up. Brazil, 13 and a three quarters percent policy rate. And dollar Brazil has been quite stable recently. You know, massive carry returns there. If we're you know constructive on commodities, Brazil has just about everything uh, you need. The question I think with there would be on the the political side as a risk uh, for Brazil. Uh, let's hope that the political transition to the new Lula administration uh, remains quite stable. All right, you know I think what we're going to do, guys, is we're going to go to the uh, questions we had, and that we, you know, apologies to so many of the questions that we missed here, but a couple uh, curious about a reading list uh, for the coming, uh, or, or just a reading list for for market history. What we reading? Uh, we're reading now, and I think uh, we've got a pretty good overview, pretty extensive list there. Uh, I would say slide eight is just some of those key investment classics. Anybody who's interested in the markets and and wants to get get a good uh, background in in the markets uh, can read. I'm also just some of my more recent reading on slide seven. Uh, Peter, you've also uh, contributed a couple things there on slide nine. There was one question that there was, and to me, it, it just uh, showed that. Um, I think people should, uh, I think it's the most interesting sort of uh, historical connecting of the dots asking about um, the Great Depression. And I think the couple, the two books that you have to read about, because also because I think the uh, lessons learned from the Great Depression are informing policy since the 1980s, especially, and that we have learned the lessons from the Great Depression and the gold standard. And we've also mislearned them in terms of we're over applying uh, the lessons learned, which are creating new risks. So if I if I can, I'll try to connect the dots here. And first of all, the, the two absolute must-reads on the uh, gold standard and on the interwar period between World War One and World War II are Lords of Finance by Leoquat Ahmed and uh, Golden Fetters by Barry Eichengreen, really showing how the gold standard just drove enormous dysfunction and really aggravated the whole rise of, of uh, the Third Reich in Germany, and, and, and the deflationary depression there after the traumatic inflation. Uh, 
must reads. And then what you have, I think, in the modern era is the learning of the lesson that we can't let something like the gold standard just create a total dysfunction and um, deflation. Therefore, we have to bail everything out all the time. And that's the the overlearned lesson. And that's creating its its own risks. And I think uh, that's what is we're starting to see the edges of why that's a problem in our current uh, policy backdrop. We think we're going to try to beat inflation, but really uh, we have to have inflation to deflate the real load of all this debt that we created for ourselves from all of these bailouts and from having inappropriately low policy. Uh, so I think that's uh, and and then I, I asked I had the question here or I asked the question maybe somewhat cheekily on slide five because that is the big question in the coming two three decades uh, and even less is our whole uh, economic system a massive Ponzi scheme uh, and it really is uh, by definition it is look at the definition of a Ponzi scheme there on slide five it's a form of fraud in which the belief and the second part quick returns to the first investors from money invested by later investors. All these pension schemes are essentially, uh, you know, first in, first out, and those that are uh, further down the line are going to get less in real terms because these things are at several multiples of GDP. This Wharton, uh, Wharton School of, of Business, it's in a UPenn University business school, talking about the federal government debt, as I underlined there, will climb to two, um, 236% of GDP by 2050 and 800% by, by 2095. It just non-serious numbers that could only be supported if, if essentially interest rates were almost negative, and we know how that uh, how that turns out. So, Peter, where do you want to jump in with your uh, book recommendations and things you've been reading recently? You're always a, a reader as well. Yeah, the the first one I've put in is the, the book called Energy by Richard Roach, which is a very uh, uh, famous author, Pulitzer Prize uh, award-winning author, and. It's a great, fascinating book, especially given the times with the energy crisis and the transition. And I think the it's a very great read about civilization, the human species, how we went from burning wood, scouring coal, and you know, taking one step up the ladder uh, every you know every century with a new energy source, or every couple of decades with a new energy source that sort of catapulted the in the at least the developed world into a higher state of wealth and income, and of course also the rest of the world. Uh, but the the revolution really started there. I think it's a very great book also because it, it sort of peaks a little bit into the future at the end. And it's just, a, it gives you an understanding that, you know, that solar and wind is not the, it's not the answer. It's a, it's a great source of energy for specific locations in the world. There's no doubt about that. It will be part of the mix. Um, so it's not here to say that it's a, it's a stupid energy form, but it's just not really uh, the solution because the solution, as you sort of get the idea from the book is that, you know, you need higher and higher energy density in energy technology to really be a game changer for society. And then the the book of why is the one I'm reading right now by Judea Perro, which was the inventor of Bayesian network uh, theory. And it, it's uh, it's a fascinating story because the whole uh, the whole domain of statistics over the past 130 years have been built on correlation and not causation. Actually, the word causation was forbidden, and it was like treated like something that was to be spit on almost by statisticians but causation is actually what is what is about the scientific method and and logic it's causation we want not correlation and it's a wonderful book and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that that this these ideas and this whole it's called path diagrams for discovering uh, causality schemes and i've seen recently that a guy called uh, prado which is a, a big one in in quantitative investing he's making a very big step against factor investing in the equity landscape and talking about this book and the thoughts by Judea Pearl and all the other people involved in the causality uh, science field. I'm absolutely sure that over the next 20, 30 years, a lot of things will be debunked. Uh, much more you know, thorough analysis will come from these ideas, really revolutionizing. It already changed my mindset on a lot of things. And then the, the last book is with the one called expectations investing that was the one that if you if you believe like me that the pendulum is swinging back from you know you can just be passive to there's actually gains to be made from being an active investor you need to do a little bit of homework yourself and if you want to be an active investor in, in equities i think this is the starting book to get your uh, to get your ideas rolling um and it, it's 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 actually not that complicated but for people a lot of people that are used to just doing passive. It, this is, of course, a little bit more work, but it's definitely doable for a lot of people. So I can highly recommend this uh, this book if you want to to be a, a better investor. 
Uh, I'm not sure why, but that, that last one there reminded me of a great question from uh, uh, from a Yatseka user asking, tell us about the great 2022 investment you regret or that you regret you didn't make. And I think it's a wonderful question because there were so many opportunities in a very, very volatile year. And I would say, uh, to my mind, one of the ones I regret is not looking more intent and intently at the huge opportunity set of the big bubble there had been in 2020, especially 2021 with some of these uh, bubble stocks, many of which we identified and put in our so-called bubble stocks portfolio. Well, if it's a bubble stock, that means it can realize incredible negative returns. Something like a company I thought was just insanely silly when I read about it, Carvana. Um, just a gold mine of a short, right? And I never really got it. I just looked at the company, thought this is insane. This thing is going to zero. Uh, did I do anything about it? Absolutely not. So certainly in the trade, I re regret not doing anything about it. Even coming into the 2022, the stock was already down, but it's basically down, I don't know, 90% or, or something like that uh, on the year. One of the easiest uh, uh, you know, nonsense stories I've ever seen. Uh, do either of you have any uh, you know, things you regret or regret not doing uh, in, in 2022, just in sort of trade or thought-wise? Well, I th uh, before we go to uh, Peter, who's obviously much more world worst in this uh, equity world um i suppose my the one that the, the one i look at most positively of this this year was uh was the fact that i i that i had an overweight in in commodities uh individual commodities and 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 commodity companies uh they have done they've done uh reasonably well relatively to the market obviously there are there's some that got away uh which were probably uh staring in your staring in your face when you were looking at commodities and that was primarily something like uh just lng uh shippers uh, ship shipping companies they have obviously had a fantastic year uh, at some stage charging several hundred thousand dollars a day just to transport uh, gas around the world especially from the us to to europe so there's been some uh incredibly uh strong uh strong developments across that sector yeah, I would say um, I would say that the um, my biggest <clears throat> regret or the the trade I should have done, given everything that we talked about, was basically to invest in in LNG and the energy, simply because it was the the ultimate hedge uh, against inflation and the interest rate shock, and I should have been seeing that. But I I, I got some energy and uh, investments over over the course of the year, but uh, I never really got into the LNG uh, trade and. Um, that was a big mistake, uh, and uh, I should have seen that, or at least have acted on the knowledge and the views of our team. But I didn't. Yeah, and then uh, looking forward into the new new year, and I'm I'm going completely out of context. Can I, as we'll roll around out the podcast in a moment with some thoughts that are uh, on the personal side. I had a few people are curious about what we do to unwind and so on, but I just wanted to, to bring in two slides that I think are interesting as areas that might create trouble in the new year. And one of those was the slide that you put up, Ola, on inflation expectations expectations which uh, you put there on um, uh, slide 15 showing that essentially we're at sub three well sub three expectations at all points out into the future on where inflation is headed if this market gets a nasty surprise it is just not ready for it next year i think is what that chart tells you would you not agree Absolutely, and uh, that's also uh, that's where we could see some major readjustments uh, in the yield market. Not only the, obviously the nominal yield, uh, which is the one we normally track, but also how the, the nominal yield, how the subcomponents of that nominal yield, basically the relationship between break-even, which is the expected inflation uh, over time, and the uh, inflation-adjusted return. So, um, so that's that's really where we we could see some some major movements, and uh, if we do. If we, if inflation failed to come down, then then again we could see a major alignment in the sense that real yields could start to come down, and that that uh, potentially could be a, a a positive for some some of the investment metals. But uh, but yeah, the the market is uh, looking at some of the major investment banks. Uh, they they most of them or at least the biggest one they they have inflation, but it's by this time next year in the uh, I would say the two point six two point seven bracket so uh so yeah the the market is trading according to what expectations are but uh, let's see if there, there could be some nasty surprises yeah and the other the other uh, sort of thing that could short circuit the market and this is on a day-to-day -day basis is some wild event triggers a volatility event because of options and derivatives exposure and that's this whole zero it's called the zero dte options so zero days to expiry options I was mentioned this uh, quite prominently in a recent podcast, just showing a, a bit how popular these have become in terms of volumes. You can see the number of uh, S&P 500 index options that are traded each day that are expiring within 24 hours on 
uh, slide 10 there. So we were talking about many multiples of what was the prior to the 2022 level. What does this mean? It means people are taking huge bets on the extremely low delta uh, movements in the market, maybe selling some to pick up pennies in front of a steamroller. What if a steamroller comes? What if it's a very, very large steamroller? And what is the moral hazard if there's supposed to be a bailout of some entity that is getting involved in this? And apparently it's not just the uh, small folks. It is uh, big players in the market that are getting into this. Why are they doing it? Well, it's the pennies uh, argument, but it's also because, and, and this was made clear to me by something many, many, a couple of you also asked, uh, what podcast, what people do you listen to? I was listening to the Top Traders Unplugged podcast. It's a, it's a good uh has a good guests and has some good content as well. Uh, their options expert saying that this is simply a, um, <clears throat> it gets around reporting requirements uh, because you report end of day. So as long as you're out of this by the end of the day, you never have to report the risk uh, that you took <laughs> for that day. So it could be something as simple as that, getting around some rules. It's creating a situation. I'm not saying this is going to happen, but it's just one of those things. It's a risk out there. So be aware of that. And then just on that note, so asking uh, resources and, and podcasts, et cetera, we, we did our reading list as well. I won't list all of them, but just go to things like the Macro Voices podcast. Uh, Ola, you've been a guest on there. They, they have some other great guests. Uh, Jim Bianco was one of the recent ones. Thoughtful people, they're not always going to be right. Um, but then you have others. That, and I think the interesting thing is always to hear different views. So, so you're not always listening to the same people that have the same view all the time. And people like, uh, I think both of them has, have also been on Macro Voices. Luke Groman, who's really concerned about the, the, the U.S. dollar versus Brent Johnson, who thinks the U.S. dollar is going to kill everybody with, as it continues to strengthen because of his so-called dollar milkshake theory. He certainly had a banner year for his predictions in 2022. Uh, but other guests from uh, Lynn Aldane, uh, Stephanie Pomboy, Juliette DeClerc, uh, many very interesting voices out there. And they'll tend to come on those type of podcasts, and that'll lead you down in, into different uh, networks of other guests that you'll find interesting. But uh, there's there's so much out there that I think uh, is great with the podcast format because some of these you get some nice longer form, hour long discussions on things. Can I add? Sure. Uh, uh, you said something that really triggered my mind there, and that was that you know get inspirations from different people with different thoughts, and I think it's really critical. There is this notion that. Our equity strategy, no, sorry, strategy teams are they always wrong or they only right half of the time. And we're certainly not right all the time. And, you know, some outfits or commentators out there, they like to sort of portray themselves as being, you know, godlike in their forecasting abilities and they're, they're always right. You know, most of us are only right slightly more than 50, 50 uh, sorry, slightly more than 50% of the time. I think the crucial thing is here not to follow one set of people to get confirmation bias because they have the same view as you. It's really oh, about, yeah. Yeah, it's really about, you know, finding uh, a bunch of people with different views and then take that in and and then form your own thoughts on that. I, I think from a forecasting and predictive, uh, from a predictive uh, mindset and also for, for investment results, I think it's a much better approach. So use us as you know, inspiration to recalibrate or calibrate your own views of the views of others. I think it's uh, it's really the way to use strategies not a strategist not really thinking that oh they are always right so i do everything they say and then also timing is so critical so somebody like luke groman who's pointing out these i think he's very eloquent at pointing out some of the structural problems around the unsustainability of the u.s deficit outlook and the unsustainability of u.s rates going any higher but there could be solutions to that that he doesn't anticipate but he points out and very eloquently lays out here's the problem set so what, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> and and that's the key thing as well. And and that problem set is coming, but is it coming in two years or is it coming in the next six months? And that's going to be very difficult uh, to, uh, uh, you know, to time. But uh, yeah, a variety of voices and uh, don't, uh, don't uh, avoid the confirmation bias. So critical. I think some of us have a tendency to want to hear pessimism all the time. As uh, Saxo market call listeners may think that we're pessimistic because we've been pessimistic for quite a while in the market. We've been right, but that doesn't mean we're going to be pessimistic forever. As the incoming backdrop changes, maybe we'll turn bullish one day uh, on, a, on a sort of more you know, longer-term basis. We can also turn bullish uh, occasionally when we think things are too negative. But just, just to be aware that we're not uh, a always bullish or always bearish shop ourselves. All right, guys, I'll start off this one. So if someone asking, how do you, what do you guys do to unwind, to de-stress, or uh, personal interests? Uh, and I would say, <clears throat> or recent things you have, have seen or done, one thing, if you ever get a chance, if even if you're not a classical music fan, go find a performance of Brachmaninoff's Second Piano Concerto. 
I, I took my wife uh, to see that and um, she was completely, she didn't know the piece, but she was completely blown away. I, I was quite familiar with it. Uh, I dabble in a bit of uh, uh, classic piano playing myself, not on that level. It's a very difficult piece, but it is beautiful music. Go see that. Uh, on the comedy side, go see Bill Bailey. I think he's a great comedian and he has a funny variety show. The only guy that I've ever seen that's a comedian that can entertain his audience for, for two hours plus. Uh, and then uh, personal interests, I am interested in foreign languages. Um, I speak some Danish, as uh, Peter and Ola will attest to. I also try to read Italian and uh, various other languages, German, even Russian. Uh, was a past interest anyway, uh, etc. So uh, that and an interest in playing cards, his, the history of playing cards, actual playing card decks, and obscure games, especially popular games in Central Europe. If that's not strange enough uh, for Saxon Market Call uh, listeners, uh, Ola, you're next. What are your? How do you do to unwind and de-stress? Oh, that's a tough one to pick up uh, on from you, John. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I, what do I do? I I I, uh, I try to uh, be out uh, outdoor as much as possible. I I, I swim all year round. Um, uh, in the winter, obviously. For that's an impressive thing in Denmark. I'll do it. Very short, yeah. Right now, the water <laughs> temperature is around five degrees, so it's obviously just a, a sort of short dip. But in the summer, I'm, I, I swim longer distances in the in the sea, which uh, we are we're blessed by having some very clear water uh, next to uh, next to Copenhagen. Here, the salt content is basically almost salt content of your eye, so you can almost swim without goggles. That's uh, that's quite quite incredible. Otherwise, I like cycle. Um, I love to cook. Um, uh, music uh, senses. Um, I think sometimes my daughter, my sixteen-year-old daughter, looks at me and says, "You're too old to listen to." Uh, Deep, uh, deep vocal house music, but uh, it, it actually, <laughs> actually, something I, I, I do like to, uh, to, to listen to from from time to time. Otherwise, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm just very broad-minded with, uh, with, with music. I, I love, uh, I love listening to all sorts of, uh, of music, and and I do not put a nod in your send a nod in your direction. Recommending of two is is incredible. Uh, I, my my late brother introduced me to classical music uh, decades ago and uh, and this was uh, this was one of his favorites as well. Yeah. An amazing piece. And I must say the younger generation, at least you and I, we're getting we're getting a little bit on in years. Well I'm saying anything about Peter, but uh the younger generation's awareness of music. Uh, some of my kids, uh, two of my kids uh, at least uh, maybe three have an unbelievable musical knowledge that is so much more vast and deep. And I think part of that has been enabled by this uh, new year of streaming music and accessing just everything uh, from from every decade. All right, Peter, you're up next. Yeah. Um, what to say? I actually love most music, uh, except I've never really got into the jazz part. That's probably the one of the few genres that really never, I never really got into. Uh, maybe I'm, that will change. I'm guilty to that one as well. Yeah, maybe it will change with the with the years. I don't know, but it's um, <clears throat> and then I have two, uh, young kids, so um, two boys, and uh, <laughs> that that leaves very little uh, spare time outside work for doing a lot of things. So, the the way I try to unplug from the whole thing is, I do a lot of uh, I like to be in the garden, do do lots of uh, of work on on that, and then. I have become the past year. I've actually also become a, a football coach, so I've sort of uh, gone deep into what what type of exercises and drills you do for this. This team is a, is a U nine team. So what do you what do you do when kids are eight nine years old? Uh, what are the great exercises and and it's a, it's actually uh, it's very great fun also because it's I mean. You, you have to talk very differently to kids and it, it's actually fascinating to be with kids and see their learning curve and it's a, it's a, it's a big joy to see oh one year ago these kids couldn't even do this and now they can do this and and yeah. thinking about where they will be the next year I think it's very rewarding to to be a coach and and take that role and I've actually got me thinking back when I was a, a young kid playing football you take you take it so much for granted because here in Denmark we have a very specific system in in sports where we don't pay a lot of the coaches uh, at the, at the age of eight, nine, and ten years, it's it's really uh, parents that are volunteering to do this work outside their or their normal duties as you know work and you know doing family stuff. So it 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 is really the glue that that keeps everything together, and uh, I find it very rewarding. And on a final note, in the first week of uh, of next year, we'll begin to get our first uh, uh, Ukrainian uh, boys into the team, and that will be a 
I, I suppose, a, a great challenge because of languages, but they hopefully they'll pick up on the Danish very quickly. And I, I just hope that we'll, we'll get the, ne the next uh, Andrei uh, Sevchenko on our team. That could, be, <laughs> that could be great stuff. He was, by the way, one of the greatest uh, Ukrainian football players of all time. Yeah, that's great stuff. Uh, yeah, you, there are a lot of Ukrainians uh, in Denmark. You hear it in the grocery store. That's the, they're here, of course, because of the terrible situation there. And I would say as we head into 2023, I would certainly, my biggest hope, and this was not part of the podcast um, uh, plan here, just to, just your thoughts there triggered the thought on my behalf that we get this that we get this war over with, that this thing winds down. Uh, that'll be my number one hope for uh, for the new year. All right. That's been a great, uh, it's been a great year that was. Thank you so much for questions and apologies again to those we did not get to with this list of questions. We'll try to do our best. I think it really inspires us though to be a bit more interactive with some of your questions. So, so you're always can feel free to send us any thoughts or specific questions you have uh, from here on out. And maybe we'll pick those up in the daily uh, Saxon Market Call podcast. But here we are, second to last day of the year. Tomorrow's New Year's Eve. I hope you have enjoy a, a lovely and fun and safe celebration tomorrow. And we'll be back Monday with the next daily Saxo Market Call. Thanks for listening. This has been the Saxo Market Call. For feedback and questions, reach out to us on Twitter at Saxo Market Call or by email, marketcall at saxobank.com.